with you all. Okay, I'm going to get into the message this morning, and this I'm coming from a little different place than I normally do this morning. Uh, it is tomorrow is Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. We celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday, and um, so I want to oh, let me pull up my uh, my notes here. I'm going to go a little a little a little a little hard today, um, uh, but um, I believe there's a word in here for us all today in the midst of the current environment and what we're dealing with, okay? So let's get into it. The title of my message this morning is Good Trouble. And our text is John 2, 13 through 22. Now, today, in doing the main thing that I set out to do this morning, which is to invoke the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in honor of his birthday, which we celebrate tomorrow, I also want to invoke the late Representative John Lewis, another civil rights icon whom we lost this year and who spoke on numerous occasions of getting into good trouble, necessary trouble. At one point, Lewis was quoted as saying this, get in good trouble, necessary trouble, and help redeem the soul of America. So let's delve into our text today and let's hear what the Lord is saying to us in the midst of this tumultuous moment in our history. A reading from John's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Here we go. And the text reads like this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem, went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all, uh, all from the temple courts both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Again, tomorrow we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And I think it's very appropriate that we have honored him as a latter-day prophet to America. A drum major, if you will, for justice. A visionary whose dream still inspires us. But, but I have read of so many folks' attitude toward Dr. King while he was still alive. You may not realize it if you're younger, but King was roundly condemned by most whites during that time as a troublemaker. That condemnation only intensified toward the end of his life as he criticized not only racism, but the Vietnam War, and then he began to fight for the poor and workers as well as fighting for civil rights. But really, isn't it often true today that Today's troublemakers become tomorrow's heroes. Uh, I found it really interesting that uh, to, to see how deeply Donald Trump 
despise Stacey Abrams, who's one of those contemporary troublemakers, a brilliant woman who performed an incalculable service to black folks in Georgia by working to educate folks about the vote and the importance of voting and getting folks out to the polls. You see, it's those who dare to get into good trouble that make a difference. Jesus exemplifies this. He criticizes the most religious folks of his day, saying, as recorded in Matthew 23, 29, and 30, you build tombs for the prophets and and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Let me tell you a secret about Jesus. Jesus was prone to make trouble. As a matter of fact, Jesus was always in good trouble. How did Jesus make this trouble? He upset the status quo. He did it consistently and he did it boldly. But listen, if we dare to call ourselves Christians, we've got to be willing to make a little trouble sometimes in the right way at the right time. And if we do that, that, Not everybody will like us. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 6, 22 and 23, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. So in order to see Jesus, the troublemaker in in action, let me set the scene for you uh, from our text today. Jerusalem here is in the middle of, of its biggest annual holiday, Passover, Passover was a week-long celebration of the liberation of the Jewish people from Egyptian slavery. I want you to remember that liberation is a big theme throughout the Old and New Testaments from from Egyptian slavery some 1,800 years earlier. Every Jewish adult male living within 20 miles of the city was required to come to Passover. Jews from all over the world wanted to be there, and thousands of them came. And and you can just imagine... uh, Two million people jammed into a city that's probably smaller than Compton, you know, about a half mile miles wide and three miles long. And in the city, in the center of that city, there was this awesome temple that covered a space about the size of maybe the Forum in Inglewood, including the parking lot. And during Passover, every Jewish male was obliged to offer an animal or bird sacrifice. Most of the Jews, especially those living some distance from Jerusalem, couldn't bring their cow or sheep with them, so they would choose to buy an animal or a bird in Jerusalem. But guess what? The Jewish authorities who controlled the temple had had sold exclusive franchises for selling these animals, and the markup tended to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 60%. But wait, there's more. The Jewish authorities had another money-making scheme. Every Jewish male was required to pay a temple tax. The tax on each Jewish male was equivalent to two days' wages or about, we could say, 200 bucks. That's a pretty stiff tax, right? And the temple authorities required that it be paid in local currency, not foreign money. So that made it necessary to have money changers present. And some of you who travel abroad, you know about currency exchanges and how that works. And so the temple authorities sold exclusive franchises for this too, and the money changers charged about 100 bucks to change foreign money into local currency. And there's no telling what the kickback was to the temple authorities. We do know that 
28 years later or so, when the Romans conquered Jerusalem and raided the temple treasury, they found something like $10 million there, the equivalent of $10 million. Now, now one section of, the, stay with me, one section of the temple complex was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was outside of the holiest sections of the temple and was a, a place where non-Jews could gather for worship and prayer. But dur during Passover, the temple authorities allowed this area to be taken over by the vendors, the animal salesmen, and the money changers. So then how could Gentiles pray with all this going on? Just imagine yourself in that space. Uh, the noise would probably have been deafening. You've got the lowing of the cattle, the bleeding of the sheep, the cooing of the, of the birds, the shouts of the hucksters, the rattle of the coins, and, and the raucous bargaining disputes. And just imagine, just imagine the smell coming from all those animals, right? Obviously, not a very worshipful atmosphere. So in John 2.14, Jesus enters this area and he's disgusted by what he sees. Picture this. Poor people being exploited. This area that's supposed to be a place of prayer has been turned into a cattle pen, a bazaar or literally a den of thieves. What did Jesus do? I'll tell you what he did. He got angry and he took direct action. He made a good whip and he started swinging it. I'm sorry, y'all. I love this picture of Jesus uh, wielding that whip, kicking over the table, shouting, get out of here. You're desecrating God's house. Just picture that in your mind. Can you imagine the cows and the sheep stampeding out of, out of their coins rolling everywhere and merchants diving for cover? And there's no indication that Jesus hurt anybody. But he sure cleaned house. Excuse me for being a bit irreverent, but he was kicking behind and taking names. So, as a side note, if you've ever pictured Jesus as a wimp who always turned the other cheek, you've got to adjust your thinking. He didn't turn the cheek here. Actually, he kicked a few cheeks if you, don't, if you know what I mean. But you may have been under the impression that anger is a sin, but the Bible doesn't say that. Right? The Hebrew word for anger appears 455 times in the Old Testament and 375 of those times refer to God's anger. The Bible says that God is slow to anger, but anger and the wrath of God are very real. Is anger a sin? Well, it depends on a couple of things. It depends on what causes it and what you do with it. Selfish anger is a sin. Jesus chastised a man for his anger over not getting what he thought was his fair share of his father's inheritance. That's selfish anger. Selfish anger is anger about not getting a raise or a promotion or not getting enough attention. <laughs> selfish anger would include being angry about having rightfully and legitimately lost an election because the loss is simply a blow to your ego and makes you look like a loser or look weak. Selfish anger. Sin. Anger that causes you to abuse another person verbally or in any other way is sin. But my friends, there is a good kind of anger that we tend to call righteous indignation. That means to be angry about the things that anger God. 
Bible actually commands us to be angry at certain times. Paul writes in Ephesians, please mute yourself, 4.26, be angry and sin not. I'm going to give you a few examples of some things that we might need to be angry about right now. Excuse me, excuse my edge this morning. It ought to make us angry that racial, racial prejudice is still so prevalent some 43 years after Dr. King's death. It ought to make us angry that some traitor would parade a Confederate flag, which is a symbol of a, a failed insurrection intended to keep African Americans bound in slavery, that someone would parade that flag through the capital of our nation, the seat of our democracy. It ought to make you angry to see the vast array of National Guardsmen uh, that were lined up on the steps of the Capitol in response to generally peaceful Black Lives Matters movement. That was it right there. While law enforcement casually responded to hordes of angry white protesters who not only protest but storm and desecrate the Capitol, leading to five deaths and a whole range of, of consequences. It ought to make us angry that this richest nation in the history of the world is still arguing against providing universal health care coverage to its citizens and trying to take away what little is available, causing unneeded suffering and financial ruin for those who fall ill without health insurance. It ought to make us angry that thousands of children all over the world will die this year from preventable causes like impure water, malaria, and HIV passed from mothers to babies. And it ought to make us angry that Breonna Taylor was shot and killed, and killed in her own apartment by officers mistakenly enforcing a no-knock warrant, and she lay there dying with no medical attention. It ought to make us angry, and it sure made me angry, that a 12-year-old Tamir Rice was shot and killed for playing with a toy gun in a park where officers rolled up on him in less than two sec seconds and gunned him down. And it sure ought to make us angry that, police, that a police officer would place his foot on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds until he dies like a dog on the sidewalk. And I could go on and on. He said, Pastor, you sound like you're mad. I'm mad about it. I'm angry about that. Those things are right. And there's a whole lot of unrighteousness and injustice and sin in our culture. But that's good anger. Righteous indignation is anger for the right reasons. It's anger that should lead us to constructive action. It's anger that leads us to the poles. It's anger that brings us to our knees. It's anger that prompts us to write and call our elected representatives. It's anger that, that led Joy to the Black Lives Matter protest and contracted COVID earlier this year because she dared as a young person to stand on the side of, of righteousness. She got over it, thank God. It's, ang it's anger that, 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 that causes us to become serious about our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ because we realize that our faith and social injustice are inseparable and our witness as Christians and our participation in Christian community are in themselves a form of protest against the power behind this wickedness in high places, the principalities and powers, the kingdom of darkness. When we do church right, when we love Jesus right, we are, we, are, we are living in protest to the kingdom of darkness and we're living on the side of the kingdom of light. Good anger becomes fuel for the building up of the kingdom of God. Jesus quotes from Psalm 69, or, or the, 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 actually the, uh, those who saw him, they, they connected 
his action and his zeal to Psalm 69, 17. Zeal for your house consumes me. Moving back into our text, this was a prediction concerning the coming Messiah. And after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, the disciples remembered this verse and understood how Jesus had fulfilled this prediction. This cleansing of the temple was the single deed by Jesus that most influenced the Jewish authorities and motivated them to conspire to kill him. The point is this, y'all. It costs something to take a stand. Where did we get the idea that following Jesus would be a piece of cake or a piece of sweet potato pie or a piece of peach copper? I digress. Whatever gave us the idea that Christians are always prosperous, always stress-free, and always above the fray. Jesus never promised us an easy life. In fact, he said in John 16, 32, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He told us in Romans 12, 12, to be patient in tribulation. Listen to Paul describing his lifestyle in 2 Corinthians 6, 4, and 5. He says, in troubles, hardships, and distresses in beatings, imprisonment, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul wasn't a rioter, by the way. He was caught up in the riots as people were, were coming against him. Let's go back to our text. John 2, 18, 19, Jesus' critics demanded to know by what authority he did what he did. How, how dare you cleanse the temple? And they kept asking for some miracle that would confirm that he was at least a prophet. So Jesus offers them a riddle. In two nineteen of John, he says, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The critics probably laughed out loud because Herod's workmen had been renovating that temple for 46 years. So it seems ridiculous for Jesus to claim he could build it back in three days. But they were thinking about the physical structure of the temple. But John 2.21 tells us that Jesus was referring to his own body. What is the meaning of this riddle? For almost a thousand years, that temple in Jerusalem had been the acceptable place to offer animal sacrifices to atone for sin, and God had instituted animal sacrifices to prepare the people to understand the blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And now that Jesus had come, the temple as a place of sacrifice would have no further use. As a matter of fact, the Romans would tear it down 43 years later. That's why Jesus told the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, that in the future, worship would not be localized in a mountain or in Jerusalem. The true worshipers would worship the Father in spirit and in truth. John 4.23 So the risen Christ is the new temple. Jesus was crucified, or in the words of the riddle, he was destroyed, and in three days he was resurrected. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the one sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' sacrifice was a one-time event, and it never again needs to be repeated. When we repent of sin and trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord, we become part of that new temple, the body of Christ, the church. As a matter of fact, Paul says this to us in 2 Corinthians 6.16. He says, you are God. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Family, here's the bottom line. Now that we are in Christ, we are called to be bold like Christ. Now that we are in Christ, the things that anger him ought to anger us. Now that we're in Christ, we must accept the fact that 
Following him will cost us. And we must be willing to pay the price. And at times we must be those who get into good trouble. But for the sake of Christ, when we make trouble, let it be for godly and goodly purposes. And may we respond at all times biblically. We may not all be in the position position to march, to, to, to sit in or whatever. There are some things we can all do. Max Lucado wrote this. He said, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. Let me say that again. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. We can do, first of all, we can do and live and be what Amos 6 eight commands. We can act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. We need to care. White evangelicalism looks the other way, and many of our dear brothers and sisters become agitated when we speak of the continuing scourge of racism and the unhealed wounds of slavery. But we cannot and we must not relent. We cannot descend into the apostate American gospel of individualism, self-gratification, and denial. But let me give you one final caveat. You, You might find it unproductive and frustrating to try to directly change the hearts and minds of deceived, deluded, and demonic people, especially on social media. Now, if that's your calling and your gift, go for it. But lies and delusions and conspiracy theories have a way of defying reason in the minds of those prone to accept it. Cultic psychology comes into play here. For the sake of your own soul, you don't want to run the risk of righteous anger turning into unrighteous rage out of frustration. But as people of faith, we believe in prayer, and we as the people of God must pray for justice, pray for change, pray for true revival in the church in this nation that would include repentance from the sins of racism and injustice and and apathy and the failure to embrace God's concern for the poor and the oppressed. Let me bring this to a close this morning. I think I've gotten myself in enough trouble today. I hope it's good trouble. In a sermon by Dr. Martin Luther King entitled uh, The Strength to Love, Dr. King described the lowest point in his ministry. It happened during the Montgomery bus protest, and he began to get threatening phone calls, and gradually he could feel himself faltering and becoming fearful. After a particularly strenuous day, he settled into bed late at night. His wife had already fallen asleep, and and the phone rang. An angry voice said, listen, then he used the N-word, we've taken all we want from you. Before next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Birmingham, or to Montgomery, I'm sorry. Dr. King hung up, but he couldn't sleep. So he went to the kitchen, and he warmed a pot of coffee, and he was really discouraged. He was about ready to give up. He tried to figure out a way he could move out of the picture without appearing to be a coward. Finally, he just dropped his head into his hands and began to pray out said, Lord, I'm here taking a stand for what I believe to be right. But now I'm afraid. The people are looking for me for leadership, but I don't have the strength to lead them. I'm at the end of my powers. I can't face it alone. Oh, but at that moment, Dr. King said that he experienced God's presence in a profound and powerful way. He seemed to hear an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. 
I will be at your side forever. Almost at once, Dr. King's fears passed. He felt an awesome sense of peace and power. And now he was ready to face anything. He went back to bed and he slept soundly. Church, God would say the same thing to us this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Stand up for righteousness. Stand for truth. I will be at your side forever. We must pray without ceasing, love without hypocrisy, and contend without fear for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. That faith is not a whitewashed, individualized, hyper-personalized gospel that ignores injustice or the plight of the poor, but it's a bold faith that not only calls men and women to repent of their sins, and it does, absolutely, but but it's a faith that speaks to matters of justice and mercy, and it calls not only for the, the conversion of souls, but the conversion of communities and institutions and nations and societies and cultures. Listen, whether it's making phone calls to your representatives or fasting and praying for change, let's make some good trouble. Amen? Happy birthday, Dr. King. Rest in peace, John.